Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. as it contains important context about who Manly P. Hall was, why his work is relevant, and an introduction by Stephen Holler. We'll begin our journey today for episode two, starting with chapter one, Gnosticism, the key to esoteric Christianity. first century of the Christian era, the intellectual world was extending its inquiries along the lines set down by the teachings of Plato and Aristotle. Plato had set up the doctrine of causes. His philosophy 
was devoted to those larger and general truths, which may be defined collectively as universals. Through him, the conception of an organized universe was introduced to Mediterranean civilization. This organization originated in archetypes, that is, grand patterns and causes. These patterns formed by the terms and elements of a divine geometry enclosed material life within a network of cosmic energies. Aristotle reacting dramatically to the Platonic challenge was endowed by nature with an organization of faculties which resented the dominion of intangibles. He did not deny the Platonic scheme of things and held that Plato's vision was unassailable, not necessarily because it was true, but because the elements involved were beyond the attack of intellectual criticism. Aristotle loved to argue, but argument about intangibles could not be conclusive. He could not win his argument on Plato's grounds. Seeking a more substantial footing, Aristotle emphasized the significance of tangibles. Here was a sphere of obvious facts. There was room for argument in matters of implication, but the facts themselves were incontrovertible. Thus, he found security in the contemplation of the knowable. He set up an organization in nature by reducing the facts and their reasonable extensions into categories. He challenged Plato to come down to earth and meet him on the level of things known. There's no indication that Plato accepted the challenge. Although the men were in close association, there never was a complete meeting of the minds, and as a consequence, Subsequent generations inherited a legacy of unfinished business. Universals were defined, particulars were organized and classified, but the interval between universals and particulars became a more and more important consideration. It was this interval between invisible causes and visible effects that burdened the intellectual world during the first century AD. The human mind engaged in the systematic process of building bridges to link cause to effect and effect to cause. The two extremes were, in themselves, irreconcilable, at least mentally. But in nature itself, they were reconciled. There must be an explanation to fit the facts. This was the broad challenge in the world of thought, and it resulted in the creation of a school of intellectuals who became the leaders of a revolutionary discovery in the sphere of mind. This discovery produced Gnosticism, and the group supporting the new solution to the pressing dilemma was known as the Gnostics. Gnosticism is defined as emanationism, or a philosophy of emanations. If two qualities cannot meet in substance, they cannot be brought together only by extension. Universals cannot become particulars, and particulars cannot become universals, 
but universals exist according to degrees and particulars exist according to conditions. For example, the ancients recognized four elements as ascending from the most solid, which was earth, to the most dense, which was air. The ascending order of the elements caused the highest to be the least material. That which is least material is most like that which is spiritual. Thus, matter exists in an ascending scale of conditions, qualifications, modifications, and rarefactions of itself. Spirit, which is the common substance of universals, likewise exists according to states. Spirit, per se, that is, in its own nature, unknowable. But from spirit proceed things spiritual, according to a descending order. Intellect is an intangible, pertaining to the order of spirit, yet to a degree it has formal dimension and proportion and is subject to definition. Energy, or force, as it was known in old times, is likewise an extension of spirit, but this extension is subject to greater limitations than intellect because it is definable. All definitions define natures according to their limitations. Axiomatically, definition is limitation. A descending order of spiritual qualities less spiritual as they depart from their own substance and cause and therefore acceptable by the mind. Conversely, an ascending order of things material, less material, as they depart from their substance and source, matter is also appreciable to the reason. What could be more reasonable, therefore, than to assume that the two opposites can meet on a common ground? Of course, Emanationism assumes the existence of two co-eternal realities, one spiritual and the other material. This Aristotle would allow, for he regarded matter as immortal, without beginning or end. He also accepted the eternity of spirit. The existence of two eternal principles endeared Aristotle to the churchmen because they found in his doctrine the comfort they sought for in their own belief in the eternity of good and evil and the endless warfare between God and the devil. A number of modern scientists are also inclined to favor Aristotle's philosophical anthropomorphism. Whether or not spirit exists belongs to the sphere of uncertainties, but the eternity of matter is a comforting thought for those seeking something permanent in an impermanent universe. Interesting speculation can result from such questions as, is spirit the highest degree of matter? Or is matter the lowest degree of spirit? This brings complications, however. Are spirit and matter qualities of one essence differing only in degree? Or are they two utterly irreconcilable opposites 
for which no common denominator exists. If the two extremes are equally inevitable and indestructible, which is the superior? Has either any need for the others? Is the action of spirit upon matter a kind of cosmic incident or accident? And can matter modify spirit? The scholastics struggled with these issues for centuries and their results, though stimulating to the intellectual faculties, were far from solutional of any practical problem. Plato held that matter was an extension of spirit, that part of the universal being most remote from the spiritual quality. He used the analogy of light and darkness. Light is a principle, but darkness is not a principle. It is merely the absence of light. The Aristotelians, not to be outdone, suggested the possibility that darkness could be a principle and that light could equally well be regarded as the absence of darkness. Light was incidental. Darkness was inevitable. Light could temporarily dispel darkness, but all light must ultimately fail, and in the failure of light, the eternity of darkness was revealed. The vital element of precedence was also involved. Did light precede darkness or did darkness precede light? That which precedes must inevitably include that which succeeds it. Did darkness contain the potential of light or did light contain the potential of darkness? Most systems infer that darkness preceded light and is therefore more ancient, more universal, and more real. Suns are foci of light set up in darkness, but in quantity. Darkness always exceeds light because light is always surrounded by an immeasurable area composed of the absence of light. Is absence then greater than presence? Presence always exists in a field consisting of the absence of itself. One condition is not definable without the other. They are co-eternal and co-dependent, which absence always in excess of presence. It's like the problem of food and appetite. Hunger is the absence of food Food is the solution of hunger. Food is real and definable. Hunger has no dimension or appearance. Which, then, is the reality? Food will remove hunger, but only for the time being. No matter how much food there might be, hunger remains and it's necessary to miss only a few meals to reveal its eternal presence. If light is food and darkness is hunger, which is the more real? Food is a temporary solution to an eternal problem. All of this is very confusing. If darkness is equivalent to space, then light may be equivalent to time. 
this again presents a variety of complications. Can time exist without its space equivalent, eternity? Is eternity the emptiness of time or the fullness of time? Is it all or nothing? If it is all time, then eternity or space is superior to time. If eternity is the privation of time, then time is the reality and eternity is merely an illusion of the mind. There is an illusion here somewhere, but which of these abstractions is the stronger depends upon which school you belong to. The early Christian concept of God further complicated the already confused picture. Most pagan systems of religious philosophy conceived of the supreme spiritual power as identical with the substance and nature of space. Thus, space dimension was regarded as complete fullness. To our physical perceptions, space is emptiness, properly described as nothing. To the pagans, this nothing was simply no thing. It was not emptiness, but the abstraction of forms. It was universal life, unconditioned, unmanifested, undifferentiated, and in its own essential state, undefinable. The early Christian church regarded deity as outside of the plan of creation. God was a person separate from the world which he had formed. This divinity ruled the universe from some extra universal throne. God exercised despotism over matter, molding it into a variety of forms. Each of these forms was ensouled by a separate life principle which descended to it from the nature of deity. Thus, to the pagans, God was a power emerging through the processes of spiritual and material generations. But to the Christians, he was a separate and alien force, controlling the creational process by an absolute tyranny of the divine will. The Gnostics belonged among the pagan groups inasmuch as they believed the universe to be the body of God through which the spiritual power manifested as a constant impulse toward unfoldment and growth. At the same time, the Gnostics attempted an explanation of Christian mystical philosophy according to a basically pagan tradition. In this way, the Gnostic cult succeeded in offending both the pagans and the Christians. Each felt that its viewpoint was compromised. Gnosticism was the great heresy of the Antinicene period of the church history the fathers of primitive Christianity having elected themselves the sole custodians of salvation. 
exercised this prerogative to stamp out all traces of Christianity as a philosophical code. They particularly resented the Gnostics because these essentially pagan thinkers insisted upon pointing out that the non-Christian sources and elements which had contributed to the rise of the Christian sect. The early bishops, saints, and martyrs, such as Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Epiphanius, Tertullian, Theodoret, divided their activities between the somewhat diversified tasks of preaching brotherly love and a gospel of charity and piety on the one hand, while on the other hand, formulating vicious and slanderous attacks upon the members of all dissenting creeds. No pious anti-Nicene father had proved his zeal and incidentally his bigotry until he had prepared an elaborate treatise against heresies and pitched a sanctified pebble at some heresiarch. All good churchmen sought to demonstrate that pagans in general and Gnostics in particular were promulgators of hateful and misleading doctrines. It was an intimated and in some cases actually affirmed that a perverse spirit, the faithful old devil, had raised up teachers of false doctrines in an effort to compromise the infallible revelations of the apostles and their legitimate descendants. Thus, the learned fathers who incidentally seemed better informed on heresies than orthodoxies, refuted all of the doctrines of the heretics with one grand gesture. It may be seen, therefore, that the Gnostics occupied an extremely precarious position. They were reconcilers of extreme differences, and the way of the peacemaker is usually quite as hard as that of the transgressor. Gnosticism was despised by the church because it sought to interpret Christian mysticism in terms of the metaphysical systems of the Greeks, Egyptians, and Chaldeans. At the same time, it was openly opposed by contemporary pagan philosophers, particularly certain Neoplatonists, because it appeared to accept, at least in part, the unphilosophic and illogical tenets forced upon an unsuspecting world by the Christian enthusiasts. Attacked from both sides, and gradually crushed by the sheer weight of numbers, Gnosticism finally passed into limbo after a desperate struggle for existence over a period of several centuries. Strange to relate, Gnosticism is indebted to its enemies for the survival of certain of its teachings. Until comparatively recently, all the information available on the subject is preserved in the writings of those excited and irritable anti-Nicene fathers who went into elaborate details concerning the substances of the heresies they condemned. Although the Gnostics have vanished from the earth, 
the analogies which they established between Christian and pagan doctrines have proved invaluable to students of comparative religion. Among the names that stand out in the Chronicles of Gnosticism, three are outstanding. Simon Magus, Basilidus, and Valentinus. They have been men of exceptional brilliance for they were singled out by the church fathers as the objects of particular and continued persecution. Simon Magus, the Syrian Gnostic, was subjected to an especially spiteful and unchristian tirade of abuse. His character was torn to shreds, and he was held up to public scorn not only as a sorcerer, but as a horrible example of the depth of spiritual, moral, and physical depravity into which an individual can descend. Basilidus and Valentinus were both men of such exceptional personal integrity that even the careful combings of the clergy were not able to bring to light anything that could be interpreted as depreciatory. It was evident, therefore, that these philosophers were heresiarchs of the most dangerous kind. They were the more deadly because they concealed their diabolical perversities behind an appearance of virtue and integrity. If a pagan had the appearance of virtue, it was because the devil conjured up an illusion in the hope and thus undermining the omnipotence of the church. If any group which shared in the Christian mystery possessed the esoteric teachings of the early church, it was the Gnostics. This order preserved to the end the high ethical and rational standards which confer honor upon a teaching. The church therefore attacked Gnosticism vigorously and relentlessly, recognizing these mystical philosophers as being the most formidable adversaries to the temporal power of Christian theology. In summing up the doctrine of Gnosticism, it's not possible to consider the numerous divisions which took place within the sect, nor the more intricate elements of its systems. From a simple cult, Gnosticism evolved into an elaborate and complex philosophy, uniting within its own structure the essential factor of several great religions. The central idea of Gnosticism was that the ascent of the soul through successive stages of being this doctrine probably originated in the astrology of Babylon with its doctrine of a series of heavens under each the rulership of a planetary god. The soul must ascend through these heavens and their gates by means of magical passwords delivered to the guardians of the doors. This viewpoint is reminiscent of the Egyptian ritual of the dead. The ladder of the worlds upon which souls ascend and descend is described in the Babylonian myth of Tammuz and Ishtar. It appears also in the Poimandras of Hermes Trismegistus, where seven planetary governors sit upon the seven concentric circles of the world through which souls ascend and descend. Here, likewise, is the symbolism of Jacob's ladder the nine royal arches of Enoch, and the seven heavens 
of the revelations of St. John. The commentaries upon Muhammad's night journey to heaven describe how the Prophet of Islam, after climbing a ladder of golden cords hanging above the Temple of Jerusalem, passed through seven gates, at each of which stood one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament. There is much in Gnosticism to intrigue the Orientalist. Bardasanis, the last of the great Gnostics, may have been influenced by Buddhistic metaphysics. This is particularly evident in that part of the teaching of the cult in which Christ is described descending through the seven worlds on his way to physical incarnation. Like the Buddha, he ensouls a body on each of the seven planes, thus literally becoming all things unto all men. The ultimate condition of consciousness to which Gnosticism aspires is also reminiscent of Buddhist doctrine. The soul is finally absorbed into an abstract state perfectly analogous to Nirvana, so that the end of existence is the condition of not being. Valentinus the Gnostic in his vision of the order of creation wrote, I behold all things suspended in air by spirit, and I perceive all things wafted by spirit. The flesh I see suspended from soul, but the soul shining out from air, and air depends upon ether, and fruits produced from bythos, profundity, and the fetus born from the womb. This is Gnostic emanationism, the birth of all natures from their own superiors and creation itself emerging from its own cause, the absolute or the profundity. In the simplest arrangement of the Gnostic concept of the Godhead, we find first the universal logos, he who stood stands and will stand. By nature and substance unknowable, he is the incorruptible, the incorruptible form who projects from himself an image, and this image ordains all things. From his own eternal soul and imperishable nature, that which abides emits three hypostases, which Simon Magus called the incorruptible form, the great thought, and the universal mind. It's interesting here to note that in as many esoteric systems, thought precedes mind, or as the ancients said, the thought conceives the thinker. Among the later Gnostics, the Godhead is represented by three potencies in this manner. Anthropos, or the man. Anthropos, son of Anthropos, the man, son of man. Or Elaldabaoth, the son of chaos. 
allow the Balf, who corresponds to Zeus in Orphic and Platonic metaphysics, is called the Demiurge, or the Lord of the World. The Gnostics believed that it was this Demiurge to whom Jesus referred when he spoke of the Prince of the World who had nothing in common with him. The Demiurge was the personification of matter, the monad of the material sphere, the seed of the world within, which locked the patterns of all generated things. Elaldabaoth gave birth out of himself to six sons, who together with their father became the seven planetary spirits. These were called the seven archons, or governors, and correspond with the guardians of the world described by Hermes. Their names in order, according to origin, are as follows. Ilaldaboth, or Saturn, Io, Jupiter, Sabaoth, Mars, Adonaios, Sun, Astaphaios, Venus, Aloaios, Mercury, Arios, the Moon. Here, Ilaldaboth becomes the outer boundary of the solar system, the orbit of Saturn within which the other planets exist as embryos in ascending order of powers. Thus, we understand the Greek fable of Saturn devouring his own children, for the ancients believed that planetary substance was finally drawn into the rings of Saturn from which it was finally scattered into space. In the Hermetic allegory, the seven guardians of the world, the builders, or Elohim of the Jews, were simply manifestors of divine purpose, in themselves neither good nor bad. According to the Gnostics, however, Ilaldaboth and his six sons were proud and opposing spirits who, like Lucifer and his rebels, sought to establish a kingdom in the abyss which should prevail against the kingdom of God. Hence, we find Ilaldaboth crying out triumphantly, there are no other gods before me. When in reality, he is the least part of the triune godhead and beyond him extends the spheres of the father and son. In his rare and valuable text, The Gnostics and Their Remains, C.W. King sums up the Gnostic Genesis. His remarks are in substance as follows. Sophia Archimoth, the generative wisdom of the world, was lured into the abyss by beholding her reflection in the deep. Through union with the darkness, she gave birth to a son, Elaldaboth, the child of chaos and the egg. Sophia Archimoth, being herself of a spiritual nature, suffered horribly from her contact with matter, and after an extraordinary struggle, 
she escaped out of the muddy chaos which threatened to swallow her up. Although unacquainted with the mystery of the Pleroma, that all-including space which was the abode of her mother, the heavenly Sophia or divine wisdom, Sophia Archimoth reached the middle distance between the above and below. There, she succeeded in shaking off the material elements which had clung like mud to her spiritual nature. After cleansing her being, she built a strong barrier between the world of intelligences or spirits which are above and the world of ignorance and matter which stretched out below her. Left to his own contrivances, Ilaldabaoth, the son of chaos, became the creator of the physical part of the world, that part which sin temporarily prevailed because the light of virtue was swallowed up in darkness. In the process of creation, Elalda both followed the example of the great deity who engendered the spiritual spheres. He produced out of his own being six planetary spirits, which he called his sons. The spirits were all fashioned in his own image and were reflections of each other, becoming progressively darker as they receded from their father. Here, we have the Platonic theory of proximities in which it described that those beings which are closest to the source of life partake most of the source, but to the degree that they retire from the source, they partake of the absence of the source, until at last the outer extremity of the reflections is mingled in the substance of the abyss. Elaldipulse and his six sons inhabit seven regions disposed like a ladder. This ladder had its beginning under the middle space, the region under their mother, Sophia Alchemos, and its end rests upon the earth, which is the seventh region. When the earth is referred to as the seventh sphere, it does not mean the physical globe, but signifies rather the region of the earth composed of ether. Elaldabaoth, as may be inferred from his origin, was not a pure spirit, for while he inherited from his mother, generating wisdom, instinct, and cunning, as well as intuitive realization of the universal immensity, he also received from his father, matter, the qualities of ambition and pride, and these dominated his composition. With a sphere of plastic substances at his command, Elaldabaoth severed himself from his mother and her sphere of intelligence, determining to create a world according to his own desires in which he should dwell as lord and master. With the aid of his own sons, the six spirits of the planets, the son of chaos created man, intending that the new creature should reflect the fullness of the demiurgic powers. 
This man should acknowledge matter to be his lord and should never seek beyond the material sphere for truth or light. But Elaldabaoth failed utterly in his work. His man was a monster, a vast, soulless creature which crawled about through the ooze of the lower elements, bearing witness to the chaos that conceived it. The six sons captured this monster and brought the awful creature into the presence of their father, declaring that he must animate it and give it a soul if it were to live. Elaldabaoth was not a sufficiently exalted spirit and he could not create life. All he could do was make forms. In his extremity, the demiurge bestowed upon the new creature the ray of divine light which he himself had inherited from his mother, Sophia Akamoth. It is thus that man gained the power of generative wisdom. This new man, sharing the light with his own creator, now beheld himself as a god and refused to recognize Elaldabaoth as his master. Thus, Elaldabaoth was punished for his pride and self-sufficiency by being forced to sacrifice his own kingship in favor of the man he had fashioned. Sophia Alkamoth now bestowed her favor on mankind even at the expense of her own son. Humanity, which now contained her light, followed the impulse of that light and began to collect of itself and into itself and divide light from the darkness of matter. By virtue of this spiritual industry, mankind gradually transformed its own appearance until it no longer resembled its creator, Elaldabaoth, but took on the visage and manner of the supreme being, Anthropos, the primal man, whose nature was of the substance of light and whose disposition was the substance of earth. When Elaldabaoth beheld his creation greater than himself, his anger blazed forth with jealous rage. His looks inspired by his passions were reflected downward into the great abyss as upon the polished surface of a mirror. This reflection apparently became inspired with life, for all bodies are but ensouled shadows. And from the abyss arose Satan in the form of a serpent, the embodiment of envy and cunning. Realizing that man's power lay in the protection of his mother, Elaldabaoth determined to detach man from his spiritual guardian and for this reason created about him the labyrinth of snares and delusions. And in each sphere of the world grew a tree of knowledge, but Elaldabaoth forbade man to eat of its fruit lest all the mysteries of the superior worlds be revealed to him and the rulership of the son of chaos come to an untimely end. 
Sofia Akamov, determined to protect the man who contained her own soul, sent her genius office in the form of a serpent to induce man to transgress the selfish and unjust commands of Ilaldabov. Man, having eaten of the fruit of the tree, suddenly became capable of comprehending the mysteries of creation. Ilalda both revenged himself by punishing this first pair, Adam and Eve, for eating the heavenly fruit. He imprisoned man and woman in a dungeon of matter, building around their spirits the physical bodies of chaotic elements wherein the human being is still enthralled. But Sophia Akamov still protected mankind. She established between her celestial region and relapsed mankind a certain current of divine light and kept supplying him constantly with a spiritual illumination through his own heart. Thus, an internal light continually protected him, even though his outer nature wandered in the darkness. The battle continued, Sofia Akomoth ever striving to protect, and Ilaldaboth ever determined to destroy. At last, sorely afflicted by the evils which had befallen her human grandchildren, Sophia Akamoth was afraid that darkness would prevail against her. Ascending to the feet of her celestial mother, the heavenly Sophia, which is the wisdom of God, she besought the all-knowing to prevail upon the unknown depth, which is the everlasting father to send down into the underworld the Christos, who is the son of the union of the father of fathers and the mother of mothers or heavenly wisdom. Elaldeboth and his six sons of matter were weaving a curious web by which they were gradually but inevitably shutting out the divine wisdom of the gods to the end that mankind should perish in darkness. The most difficult part in the salvation of man lay in discovering the method by which the Christos could enter into the physical world. This method must be within the law of creation, for the gods cannot depart from their own ways. To build bodies was not within the province of the higher gods. Therefore, Elaldeboth himself had to be coaxed into creating, without knowing the end, a body to receive the Soder. Sophia Akamoth appealed to the pride of the Demiurge, and finally prevailed upon Elaldeboth to prove his powers by creating a good and just man by the name of Jesus. When this had been accomplished, the Soter Christos enveloped himself in a cloak of invisibility and descended through the spheres of the seven archons. In each of the arches, 
as he assumed a body appropriate to the substances of that sphere. In this way, concealing his true nature from the genii, or guardians of the gates. In each world, he called upon the sparks of light to come out of the darkness and join him. Having united all the light of the worlds in his own nature, the Christos descended into the man Jesus at the baptism. This was the moment of the age of the great miracle. Elaudaboth, having discovered that the Soter had descended incognito to thwart his purposes, stirred up the people against Jesus, and using all the forces of materiality at his command, he succeeded in destroying the body by which the Christos was functioning in the material sphere. But before the Soter departed from the earth, he implanted in the souls of just men an understanding of the great mysteries and opened forever the gate between the lower and the higher universes. Thence, ascending into the middle space, he, or Christ, sits on the right hand of Elaldeboth, but unperceived by him, and there collects all the souls which shall have been purified by the knowledge of Christ. When he has collected all the spiritual light that exists in matter out of Elaldeboth's empire, the redemption will be accomplished and the world will be destroyed. Such is the meaning of the reabsorption of all the spiritual light into the pleroma or fullness whence it originally descended. Gnostic Christianity conceived of salvation without benefit of exoteric clergy. The Christ, or the Soter, was the high priest who by his descent destroyed forever the old order of the world. Religion became a matter of internal adjustment. Forms and rituals by which primitive people had propitiated Elaldabulf were regarded as valueless under the dispensation of the Christos. The mystic sacraments of the Gnostics, on the other hand, were instituted by the Christos to facilitate knowledge of the truth. The rule of fear and darkness was gone. The rule of love and light had come. It appears, however, that the church regarded this new arrangement as economically unsound. The Gnostics were destroyed, lest their philosophy render useless the temporal power of the Christian church. It was Basilides who claimed to have been a disciple of one of the twelve apostles who formulated the strange concept of deity, which carried the name Abraxas. In the ancient system of numerology, the number equivalent to Abraxas is 365. Therefore, the divinity represents the 365 aeons or great spiritual cycles which together make up the nature of the Supreme Father. 
the natural physical symbol for the source of spiritual light is the visible sun, the source of physical light. Therefore, Abraxas is a sun god. The deity itself is a composite creature with the head of a rooster, the body of a human being, and with legs ending in serpents. This Gnostic pantheos represents the supreme principle expressing five attributes or emanations. The head of the rooster signifies phronesis, foresight, or vigilance. And this is a sidebar for me, the host of Night Night Bitch. It's no coincidence that the head of Abraxas is a rooster. And when we think about waking up in the morning, cock-a-doodle-doo, wake up, awakening, it's no coincidence. Anyway, we continue with the book. The two arms of Abraxas bearing the whip and shield are Dynamis and Sophia, power and wisdom. The two serpents forming the legs are Nuos and Logos, wisdom and understanding, by which the figure is supported. The human body is a mystical intimation that all these powers shall be revealed or perfected in man. Although the early church did everything possible to exterminate the Gnostics, cupidity played a part in the survival of some holy relics. The Gnostic hierophants identified themselves by their signets or jewels of recognition. These signets were usually intaglios, plain on one side, and with the figure of Abraxas or the lion face of the sun on the other. The stones were set with the plain surface on the outside to make identification with the wearer more difficult. The gems were frequently engraved with Greek letters around the central design. The letters represented magic words or the name of God. The more commonly used stones were carnelian, crystal, bloodstone, and emerald matrix. The church fathers had no mind to destroy valuable property. So the rings were saved and also some other inscribed gems containing prayers or fragments of Gnostic philosophy and magic. The Abraxoids, stones bearing the figure of Abraxas, are exceedingly rare, but we are able to reproduce with this article a fine example of the collection of our society. There are small collections of these gems in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris and the Library of the Vatican at Rome. Gnostic intaglios date from the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd centuries of the Christian era. The Abraxoids originated in northern Egypt, and the strongest seat of the Egyptian Gnosis was the library city of Alexandria. The Gnostics were only one of several groups which attempted to reconcile pagan and Christian doctrines during the first five centuries. These groups insisted that there was nothing essentially new 
in the Christian dispensation. The Syrian cult was merely a reformation of long-existing institutions, a new interpretation of doctrine sanctified by the veneration of countless nations and peoples of the past. In fact, even the Christians themselves did not realize that they were the custodians of a unique revelation until the growing power of the church forced this conclusion upon them. Early in this article, we discussed the subject of emanations by which irreconcilable opposites appear to mingle in the middle distances between extremes. The Gnostic cult itself represented an effort to attain this condition of moderation by searching out the Christian elements in pagan philosophy and the pagan elements in Christian philosophy. The Gnostics sought to bind the two great dispensations of their time into a unified group dedicated to the perpetuation and dissemination of spiritual wisdom. Gnosticism was a temperate zone between frigid paganism and torrid churchianity. But at that particular time, neither the pagans nor the Christians had any mind for temperance or balance. The two great institutions realized that they were locked in a battle to the death. Christianity was certainly the aggressor, and there is very little evidence that paganism was essentially intolerant. After all, there were a hundred pagan institutions of spiritual and intellectual culture. These were not necessarily in mutual agreement, but they had dwelt together in comparative peace for thousands of years. The Romans summed up the situation rather well. The citizen may worship at any shrine or temple that pleases his fancy. He may accept the cults of Egypt favor the Magian religion of Persia, or pay homage to Greek divinities. He may worship in all temples or in none, but regardless of the definitions of his faith, he must pay his taxes. Gnostic intaglios bearing the form of Abraxas are called variously Abraxoids, Abraxter gems, and Abraxas gems. According to Dr. J. Bellarmine, the Egyptian Gnostics of the first three centuries held the figure of Abraxas in high esteem. They used to symbolize both teacher and teaching as the subject and object of their transcendental researches and mystical speculations. The signets were tokens and pass symbols along the initiates of the fraternity by which they recognized each other and gained admission to their assemblies. The Abraxoid was also an amulet against evil and a talisman of power. It further served the practical purpose of a seal which could be affixed to documents. Most Abraxoids are crudely carved the cutting appears to consist of a variety of notches and was done with a small, coarse wheel. The materials were selected for their magical properties 
and included jasper, chalcedony, fibrous hermodite, and other substances of no great value. Fine abraxoids and crystal originated outside the sect itself and were used by astrologers and magicians. Many Gnostic gems bear figures of Greek or Egyptian divinities and magical inscriptions. The form bearing only the rooster-headed deity is the most rare and only a few examples are known to be in private collection. Perhaps the pagans were temperate, with a slight tendency toward the chilly side. Their religions were scientific, philosophic, and ascetic. They discussed God reasonably rather than impulsively, and they approached the problem of living as a serious business to be undertaken scientifically. There's also the much-discussed subject of pagan morals. In the long perspective of the ages, there appears to be a very little essential difference between ancient and modern delinquency. The old Greeks and Romans and their Egyptian and Chaldean cousins were pious in their pronouncements and somewhat inadequate in the personal application of their impersonal convictions. As one writer expressed it, it is a little difficult to distinguish clearly between Christian and pagan vice. All men, in all times, under all conditions, and in all places, have found it difficult to be virtuous in the presence of intensive temptation. It's been suggested that Christianity was a spontaneous emergence of personal nobility, a powerful revulsion against the indescribable and utterly detestable private and public corruption of the pagan world. It seems to me that there is a hint of bias in this perspective. While the early church was gathering its strength for mighty works, Paganism also was producing examples of high-mindedness and fineness of character equal to anything that the Christian could advance by way of comparison. From the period of 500 BC to 500 AD, civilization received its priceless legacy of religious foundations, philosophical doctrines, scientific institutions, artistic and literary monuments, and its enduring codes of laws, statutes, and regulations of human conduct. From medicine to astronomy, from architecture to poetry, from agriculture to ethics, human talents and abilities were being wisely directed toward what Lord Bacon describes as reasonable ends. During this period, the modern concept of democracy unfolded. Universal suffrage was advocated by the Roman Empire and universal legitimacy was decreed. A Roman lady of the second century had more legal standing than a modern woman living in the state of New York in the 19th or early 20th century. Politicians have always been a seedy lot, but Roman law was essentially sound and was enforced with a reasonable degree of efficiency. Most of the progress attained in the thousand years aforementioned was accomplished by pagan men and women. 
Hippocrates, the father of medicine, was a pagan. So likewise was Ptolemy, the father of geography. The multiplication table was given to us by a pagan, and the very first Christian hymn was a pagan song with new words. In the four centuries directly preceding the Christian era, the pagan world produced nearly 600 immortal leaders of human thought, human industry, and human achievement. Without these men, modern civilization simply would not exist. How many outstanding leaders of equal or approximate ability were produced in the first four centuries of a Christian-dominated Mediterranean civilization? We leave the reader to ponder this issue and discover, if he can, any such array of intellect outside of a circle of theological controversialists whose contributions were completely sterile. It's a little difficult to imagine that men of the caliber of Plato, Hippocrates, Cicero, Seneca, and Marcus Aurelius could have been the products of a religious or moral condition as corrupt as the Christian fathers would have us believe. If like begets like, then greatness must arise from greatness. The wisdom of the individual reveals the essential wisdom of his time and place. The contemporaries of Cato, the elder, may not all have shared the largeness of his mind, but the materials necessary to create that largeness must have been available and readily accessible to such as were by nature inclined to largeness. Even in our own times, all men do not take advantage of the intellectual and spiritual opportunities which civilization offers, but it would be unkind and unfair to deny the existence of truth and wisdom. We have no intention of belittling the essential principles of the Christian dispensation, but we are inclined to agree with Muhammad that the anti-Nicene church fathers went to work systematically to organize a theological system so narrow and so ridden with intolerances that Jesus himself could not have been a member of his own church. Had Jesus been born again in 350 AD, he would have been pronounced a heretic and probably crucified a second time for merely repeating the words attributed to him in the Gospels. Many enlightened pagans regarded the teachings of Jesus with the highest veneration. They saw in him one of their own, a noble and heroic man who had dedicated his life to the restatement of those noble principles and truths which are indispensable to the perfection of human character. Very few pagans ever attacked the teachings of Jesus, but they did oppose the organization of those teachings into a sect obviously dedicated to political anarchy. From the beginning, the Christian church was resolved to overthrow the pagan world and establish itself as both the spiritual and temporal autocrat of civilization. This brought the two systems to an impasse. The struggle was no longer one for survival. 
but for complete and solitary domination. Groups like the Gnostics attempted solution through reconciliation. There was room in the world for more than one religion and spiritual institutions professing identical purposes should be able to cooperate without ulterior motive. The pagan and Christian institutions should acknowledge their mutual independence and derive inspiration from each other. Intellectual controversies have little effect upon the natural processes of life. It's impossible to conceive of a Christian or pagan oak tree or a Christian or pagan sunset. Men of all faiths are born, live their lives, useful or useless according to temperament, and having fulfilled their span, depart from the theater of this world in spite of belief or unbelief. The garden of the pagan farmer flourishes with proper care, and the garden of the Christian farmer is also green if he uses the same industry. Both gardens fail by neglect. The rain falls upon the just and the unjust, and belief or unbelief adds nothing to the stature of the man or the contents of his barns. The Christian stomach ache is just as painful as pagan dyspepsia, and the prayers of the infidels are answered or unanswered exactly the same as the prayers of the most orthodox bigot. Why then should we become so concerned about what we believe? The richness to ourselves lies in the fact that we believe. Our personal acceptance is the reality of something supreme and beautiful, noble and wise. It's necessary to our personal security. The Buddhist finds peace in the shrines of his faith. The Shinto is reassured inwardly by a pilgrimage to a sacred mountain. The dervish finds God by dance and song. Each, in his own way, enjoys the benefit of spiritual consolation. There's no evidence in nature as to which faith has preferment. Religious controversies are particular to the human intellectual equipment. Animals have no interest in theology but obey the laws of their kind deriving instruction from experience. Religion is necessary to man, but competitive theologies are neither necessary or desirable. Religious prejudice, religious intolerance, and religious fanaticism are psychoses. They're irrational fixations which unbalance the reason and if uncorrected may lead to incurable, mental breakdown. There's a great deal of difference between a philosophical system and a theological system. Most philosophers are by nature fitted for abstract thinking. Their primary concern is to discover the universal plan as it operates through the symbolism of creation. They have no desire to stamp this plan with the signet of any creed, 
but through their contemplation, they discover the grandeur of the world. This grandeur itself becomes their spiritual code. They're satisfied to accept the motion of universal principle moving according to absolute and unchanging law. Their definition of virtue is derived through the observation of the operation of law upon the substances of nature. Philosophers may differ among themselves, but their differences do not prevent them from mingling as human beings bound together by a common realization of mental inadequacy and a redeeming sense of humor. Their attitudes can be estimated by the adaptation of their requirements of a familiar saying, I disprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Theological systems are especially deficient in a sense of humor. In fact, with most of them, happiness itself is a mild form of heresy. Religions approach the wonders of creation emotionally rather than mentally. Instead of accepting the world as it is, the theologian is forever trying to inform the world in terms of what he feels the world should be. Philosophers and scientists are working toward conclusions, but most religious leaders are working from conclusions. Possibly the difficulty is that emotions are intensely personal. Emotional reflexes arise from our own reactions to the things that have happened to us. Our personal experiences become the measuring stick by which we attempt to acclimate universals. If we have suffered, suffering is the universal plan. And if we've been unfairly treated, there's no justice in the world. By investing the divine powers with personalities like our own, we create a pantheon of nervous, excitable, erratic, inconsistent, uncomfortable, frustrated, neurotic, and inhibited divinities who run the world with the same lack of ability with which we administer our own affairs. The philosopher Pythagoras defined a deity as an infinite being whose soul was formed of the substance of truth and whose body was formed of the substance of light. Such a definition arises from a deep, gentle contemplation of the beautiful and the good. How different is this conception of deity, which is great enough to sustain all life impersonally and impartially, from the God concept of theology? One brilliant theologian declared that the earth was divided into 30 parts. The races and nations inhabiting 27 of these parts were doomed to eternal perdition because they did not belong to his church. Such a statement is so obviously unreasonable that it has little favor in our more liberal times. The concepts of God in theology have been worked over considerably in the last century, but a number of absurd misconceptions still linger on to plague the private citizen and frustrate the United Nations program. 
While the majority of moderns are inclined to allow various races to worship as they please, this emotion arises from indifference rather than enlightened liberalism. We have not yet reached the degree of maturity by which we may perceive as a fact that religious systems are simply human efforts to interpret a divine mystery. It is the mystery and not the interpretation that is real. If we are a normal, healthy, growing people, our interpretations must and should grow and change. We are not heretics because we change our minds. We are not untrue to God because we discard old forms of belief that no longer serve us. The end of religion is the internal knowledge of the divine power within you. This knowledge brings with it a greater measure of veneration and love and a firmer desire to live according to the beauty of the divine plan. Names and sects and creeds are important only while the nature of truth itself is unattained. When we understand the principle, we become tolerant of that variety of forms which men have built in the name of the nameless. The Gnostics sought to find the esoteric tradition of the mystery schools in the Christian revelation. They told the story, amplified it, enriched its emblems and figures, and accepted the Christian Christ as a form of the eternal hero of the world. To them, Christ was Dionysus, Osiris, Adonis, and even Buddha. Being a philosophical sect, they were seeking the universals of the new faith. They had no interest in an ecclesiastical system, for they realized that no man can be saved by addicting himself to a theology. The value lay in the soul experience. If Christianity could bestow a new dimension upon the internal conviction of realities, then Christianity was important. This importance deserved the respect and admiration of all thoughtful and sincere men. The new sect was valuable for those things in it which were eternal. As an innovation, it was worthless. It must justify its existence by proving that it participated in the esoteric tradition of the ages. All the philosophical schools made use of the symbolism of a soter or high priest of the inner mystery of salvation. It was evident that in the Christian sect, Christ was this soter. It was a philosophic belief that the universe was created by the wisdom of God. This wisdom was revealed through the magnificent framework of laws which maintain the order of the cosmos. In the Gnostic system, wisdom was the second logos which came forth out of the eternal will, which is the first logos. Will emanates wisdom, and wisdom in turn engenders action of the active principle. Action is the third logos called the Holy Ghost. 
represented by a dove beating the air with its wings. The word ghost is from geist, and in its original form, the term signified a breath or motion of air. Our word gust, as applied to an agitation of the atmosphere, comes from the same root. The Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit, is the mover of the substance of the material creation. Thus, we have a basic trinity of will, wisdom, and activity. In the Gnostic philosophy, special emphasis is placed upon the principle of wisdom, which is regarded as the universal savior and the mediator between cause and effect. The nature of wisdom itself is a profound mystery, implying far more than our present definition of the word. The wisdom principle is a compound consisting of two qualities bound together by an internal sympathy. It is the first extension of unity towards diversity and at the same time, it is the least degree of that diversity. It's a mistake to regard wisdom in the term of the gnosis as originating from intellect or in itself intellectual. Wisdom is not of the order of thinking. It is of the order of knowing. Knowledge is possible only through the establishment of an intense sympathy between the thing knowing and the thing known. The subject and the object must be bound into an intimate compound by an experienced consciousness. Wisdom, therefore, is a kind of artificial unity made possible by the power of the will. Like the philosopher's stone described by the alchemists as the man-made diamond, wisdom is a synthetic essential substance perfected by art. The knowledge aspect of wisdom is philosophy. It's the power to perceive the divine nature, divine will, and the divine purpose in all structures, substances, and processes of nature. True philosophy is an experience of consciousness toward the discovery of truth. The love aspect of wisdom, the Sophia of the Gnosis, is natural religion or faith. Wisdom is experienced as an emotional impact. The universal realities are felt and estimated in terms of the feelings which they stimulate within the personality. The wisdom love, a perceptive power, if exercised as the instrument to attain the state of knowledge, results in the perfect experience of God and nature. As is usual with philosophical groups, the Gnostics were individualists and opposed to any intense program of organization. The sect consisted of numerous small groups, 
each dominated by one or more intellectuals with strong personal convictions. Gnosticism was in many schools enclosed within a loose program of integration with few restrictions upon the convictions and tastes of its members. Circles of Gnostic thought sprang up in most of the countries bordering on the Mediterranean. Each of these circles contributed original ideas to the larger pattern of Gnostic thought. These groups of original thinkers were influenced by the religious and philosophic systems which flourished in their environment. The Gnosis was a purpose rather than a cult. It was searching for itself in all structures of ideas which appeared strange or different. For lack of organization, the Gnostics presented no united front and lacked the machinery to rally their forces against any common enemy. At that time, the rising Christian church was the enemy of all pagan movements. It had the advantage of recognizing the importance, from a temporal standpoint at least, of building a solid, internal mechanism. The isolated communities were drawn together under unified ecclesiastic authority. As a result of this premeditated program, the church was in a position to impose its will, by force if necessary, upon the scattered and unorganized pagan schools. Gnosticism spread by a process of free growth. It unfolded like a plant extending according to impulse and with no dogmatic concepts. It was therefore extremely liberal and by constitution non-militant. It suffered from the uncertainties natural to extreme liberalism. The Gnostics have been held responsible for the rapid development of the temporal authority of the Christian church the anti-Nicene fathers united their resources to stamp out Gnosticism. Had they failed, the church would itself have ceased so far as political authority was concerned. The early bishops learned the important lesson that a religion must be organized in order to survive as a temporal institution. They learned their lessons so well that organization has been a primary consideration from their time to the present day. It may be reasonably asked if the church had any real justification for its program of exterminating the Gnostics. From a broad and personal viewpoint, the action of the fathers cannot be condoned but according to their own convictions and beliefs, their actions are quite understandable. The Gnostics accepted the Christian concepts of Christ into their own system and interpreted the Christian mystery by means of their elaborate system of heterodox mythology. Their Christology took on the splendor of Asiatic legendary and was involved in elaborate metaphysical imagination. The church fathers felt that heathen philosophers literally had stolen their own most priceless possession, the Christ concept, from them. 
Worse than this, if anything could be worse, their Christ was being interpreted as to be used against the very church that was created to advance his cause. Such a state of affairs was intolerable and called for heroic measures. The Gnostics further embarrassed the Christian community by rejecting most of the Old Testament, questioning the inspiration of the apostles, denying the infallibility of the clergy, and selecting only St. Paul as a trustworthy authority. These critics had the brazen effrontery to select at pleasure from the storehouse of Christian lore, that which they accepted immediately lost its orthodox Christian complexion, reducing the church so they felt to a minor sect among the pagans. The devotees of Christianity were outraged and forgot their own differences long enough to meet this challenge with every means available. Numerically overwhelmed and outorganized, the Gnostics gradually faded from view to survive only as elements in later systems of thought. It's not easy to estimate the true proportions of a philosophy which survives principally in the writings of its opponents. We may be certain that no effort was made to present Gnosticism attractively in the writings of the Church Fathers. Furthermore, the Gnostics lost the confidence of the pagan historians because they incorporated certain elements of Christian symbolism into their own system. They were bitterly attacked by the Greek and Egyptian Platonists and were left without any informed apologists. Even the fragments which have descended to this time have to some degree been corrupted by unsympathetic editors and translators. No outline of Gnosticism would be complete without a consideration of Marcion and the Marcionite churches. Marcion, who lived in the 2nd century AD, is believed to have been a wealthy shipowner of Sinope, who was converted from paganism and became an influential leader in the early Christian church. He traveled considerably and reached Rome in about 140 AD. He was an original thinker and attempted to institute what he regarded as essential reforms in Christian theology. Although he contributed generously to the funds of the church, his ideas were rejected with such firmness and, as he regarded it, intolerance, that he drifted toward Syrian Gnosticism. His determination to reconvert the Christian church to what he held to be the pure gospel never wavered, and he went so far as to create a church of his own, which for a time threatened the survival of the Roman communion. Marcion was one of the first to recognize the basic inconsistency between the teaching of the Old and New Testaments. He criticized the fathers for imposing the Mosaic disposition upon the moral and ethical teachings of the messianic ministry. If the two books, the Old and New Testaments, had equal or even approximate sanctity, there could be but one answer, and that was, there were two gods. 
the God of the Old Testament, Marcion called the just God, and the divine person of the New Testament he called the good God. The just God was a God of wrath and vengeance sitting in judgment over the world. This God demanded an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and only the blind, unquestioning, and complete obedience of his creation satisfied this universal autocrat. The good God, who was superior to the just God and dwelt beyond the sphere of retribution, was a God of love and benevolence. He demanded from his creatures gentleness of spirit, friendship, brotherhood, and the forgiveness of sin. It was this good God who was the father of Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ was regarded as an incarnation or manifestation of the infinite love and wisdom of the good God. He had come to this world to free it from the depotism of unbending law and establish it in a sphere of grace. In the doctrines of Marcion, the Apostle Paul was regarded as the only immediate follower of Christ who had sensed the mystery of the two gods. The evident mysticism of Paul's views fitted admirably into this Gnostic pattern. Unfortunately, Marcion's doctrine presented difficulties, which broke down when analyzed by the instruments of philosophy. It was difficult to rationalize a universal plan administered by two gods motivated by contrary purposes. The human soul, for example, was created by the just God and the human spirit was redeemed by the good God. This presented numerous complications. It required that man attain an end contrary to the purposes for which he was created and inconsistent with his sphere of life and experience. It also presented an extraordinary conflict in the delicate issue of redemption. If we assume that those who accepted the doctrine of Marcion came ultimately to union with the good God, what was the fate of the objectors and dissenters and unbelievers? If a virtuous man chose to remain true to the just God, what was his ultimate state or reward? Did each of the deities preside over an elysium and reward his believers? If so, there were two heavens. Such a contention in itself was doctrinally absurd. It's impossible to build a faith that will gain any numerical strength without assuming that the unbeliever is destined to ultimate misfortune. The Marcionite churches held, for the most part, that those who followed after the just God found no favor even in the eyes of their selected divinity who rewarded them for their devotion only with perdition. 
It's customary to blame Marcion for having promulgated a fantastic theology, but in simple truth, the fault lay not with him, but with the early church fathers. His mistake was that he took their twofold scriptures and came to the only possible conclusion. The two testaments were different and inconsistent, and each taught a different concept of God. If both were inspired and infallible, then there must be two gods. The contradictions still exist, but theology has glossed over them, and the modern believer has made no effort to examine impartially the substance of that conflict. The god who hardened Pharaoh's heart is still hard to reconcile with the god of love described in the Pauline epistles. Marcion himself appears to have been a good and kindly man, sincerely desirous of taking the doctrine of vengeance out of the Christian dispensation. His communities attracted many gentle, kindly souls, and as time went on, they sought to heal the rift in the divine nature. In the end, the Marcionites reduced the just God to a secondary state, making him a servant and an instrument of the principle of good. It's important to note that the earliest inscription found upon a Christian place of worship in 320 AD was over the doorway of a Marcionite greeting place. The Gnostics continued for a while to influence Christian thought largely through the followers of Marcion. Traces of the sect are to be found as late as the 10th century AD, and the questions which Marcion pondered were revived in the years of the Protestant Reformation in England. Even today, the principles of justice and mercy are usually in conflict in practice, if not in theory. The principal surviving text of the Gnostics prior to the discovery of the Nag Hammadi codices was the Pistis Sophia, which has been ascribed, probably without much justification, to Valentinus, who also lived in the second century. Like Marcion, he finally broke away from the Christian church Certainly, the Pistis Sophia unfolds his system and should be attributed to Valentinian Gnosticism. The Coptic manuscript of the Pistis Sophia, known as the Askew Codex, is in the British Museum and has been assigned to the 4th century. It is possible, however, that it is somewhat later that the manuscript presents important commentary material on early Christian belief cannot be questioned. There's also considerable probability that it preserves legends and reports widely circulated during the 4th and 5th centuries. The text would indicate that an advanced degree of metaphysical speculation flourished in Christian communities. A considerable part of the manuscript 
is concerned with esoteric instruction given to Mary Magdalene by Jesus himself. Gnosticism is a powerful link between the elaborate philosophical system of Asia and the mysticism of Syria and Egypt. As such, it offers a vast amount of material to students of comparative religion and esoteric philosophy. It also supplies many missing elements of the Christian story and implies the existence of a well-formulated esoteric tradition under the surface of early Christian theology. This marks the end of Chapter 1 of The Wisdom of the Knowing Ones by Manley P. Hall. On the next episode, we will be reading Chapter 2, Parallels Between Eastern and Western Philosophy. Thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. Selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment, and discussion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors and creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam, life what is it but a dream? Night, night, bitch. <laughs>